0: The topic that we're gonna talk about today is, we've titled it Atonement and Reconciliation with the God who is love. And I think that the first thing we wanna ask is, does this topic matter? Should it matter to us? And I would answer that yes, because at the core of what we're gonna discuss today is our understanding of who God is. Is he a vengeful, angry God that we should be afraid of? Or is he a loving God who has made himself approachable to us so that we could become one with him? Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So if what we speak of today reveals or explains who God is, then, it's, then it, it is at the core of our salvation because that's eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. I think one of the main issues that we're going to challenge is the understanding of the wrath of God. What does that mean? We all understand that the Bible teaches us about the love of God and the wrath of God. But if you've ever read the Old Testament and then the New and felt like there was some disparity between the two, then please listen carefully, and maybe you can walk away with a a better understanding. If you ever read the, the conquest of Canaan, and saw how God commanded violence and wrath and judgment, and then read, Jesus, I did not come to judge the world, nor to condemn the world, But I came that the world might be saved, came to seek and save that which is lost. You say, how do these two reconcile? This God of wrath, or what seems to be this God of wrath, and this God of mercy. So, we're going to get into the wrath in just a minute. But first we want to ask, we want to talk a little bit about the, the creation and the fall of man. The Bible tells us that when God created the world after the 6th day, he said that he saw everything that he made was good. Genesis 1:31, God saw that all which he had made and behold it was very good. Tov me'od is the word in is the words in Hebrew, very good. 1 Timothy 4:4, 4, 4, Paul also says everything created by God is good the world was a paradise a place without disease or decay without punishment or pain all was just how it was supposed to be there was no correction there was no justice there was no retributive wrath of God everything was perfect but in his wisdom and foreknowledge God anticipated the temptation and fall of man therefore in this yet perfect world He encoded provisions of correction intended to turn us back from the path of ultimate destruction. Like a wise master programmer, God encoded into his pristine nature automatic providential reactions to sin. These providential reactions to sin we call pain, punishment, or justice. Let me give an example And I don't claim that it's a perfect example but let's imagine that some of us have some cabins, as some of us actually do. Brother Matthew and I have some cabins. So let's imagine that we we build this cabin for some neighbors of ours, Mr. and Mrs. Wrecker and their sweet children. And we say, we've built this home for you. We want you to inhabit this home. We want you to live in it, take care of it. It'll be a shelter to you. It's our gift to you. But the wreckers began to wreck the home and they're cutting in, uh, into it with saws they're beating on it with hammers they're undermining its structural integrity it would give us a little bit of uh, apprehension i think as the owners not only do we not only would we be frustrated that they were wrecking our home but we would also be worried that they were going to hurt themselves in the process are you with me so if, if we're going to prevent this, it's going to require constant intervention on our part. Oh, please put down that hammer. Please don't let your kids uh, pour acid on the furniture. Please don't let the dog pull the blinds off the window. Please, please. But let's imagine then that we have a thousand cabins and a thousand families who are just like the wreckers who are inhabiting these cabins. How much intervention and constant maintenance would it take to keep up with the propensity toward destruction in the wreckers and folks like them? So let's imagine that we invented a cabin where if the dogs went and grabbed the blinds, the blinds sent off uh, a negative stimulation charge (laughs) that repelled them from the blinds. Let's imagine that if you hit the the, the wall with the hammer, your arm got hurt. Let's imagine that there were encoded in the cabin responses to destruction that would repel the same. What if God did the same thing when he created the world? What if this world that was created so good So pristine, such a beautiful paradise, a garden of Eden. What if God anticipated our propensity towards sin and encoded in this world certain responses that would prevent us from destroying it and in doing so, destroying ourselves? So, such provision of pain, such provision of correction... Is it a cruel thing or can it be a kind thing? We see with our children that if a child goes walking toward the wall socket with a key in his hand, we might feel obliged to intervene with utmost speed. We might even swat his hand to prevent him from killing himself at the wall socket. Take for example, even if I go and touch the hot stove, how many of you have ever touched something hot and pulled your hand away very quickly? All of us have. You don't say, oh, I'm so glad I got burned. But in a real sense, that pain is a blessing. It's a mercy. Let's imagine, if the, if, let's imagine you reached behind you and leaned against a hot stove and you didn't feel the pain. What would happen? Your hand would be consumed if those surface nerves in your skin didn't hurt you with a small pain, it would result in a great pain that would destroy your hand. You would look around and your hand would be on fire. Then Then you have a real problem, don't you? So pain can be corrective and it can be a mercy that makes us recoil from utter destruction. So that's how God was looking at the world. He put in this world forces of nature that that would would help us pull back our hand, our souls from the path of utter destruction before, before it was too late. If we're going to talk about the nature of God, who He really is, is He a God of wrath or is He a God of love? And can we explain these two? Then first we have to ask ourselves, what part does Jesus play in the revelation of God. Because we already said that the God of the Old Testament sometimes seems different than what we saw in the life of Jesus. So before we delve into it, let's take just a moment and talk about what part does Jesus play in revealing who God really was. Let's look at some of these scriptures. Remember in John 1... John testified about Jesus and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me is of a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Amplified then goes on in verse 18 and says, No man has ever seen God at any time. The only unique Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has revealed Him. He has brought Him out where we can see Him. He has interpreted Him and has made Him known. Your Bible may say, No one has seen God but the only begotten Son of God in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him or revealed Him. So in this scripture we see that the writer is saying, We've never seen God before. What we're going to see in Jesus is original in its fullness of revelation. Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, after after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he, the Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they." So in both of these passages, we see a contrast between the Old Testament and the New. In the past, he spoke through the prophets in many ways and portions. But in these last days, we see the exact representation of God's nature. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Jesus is the exact picture of who God is. He is the image of God, and by comparison, no one has ever seen God before. Everything else was bits and pieces, portions and shadows. In Jesus we see who God really was. Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have have been created through him and for him. The Old Testament revelation of God is important, but it gives us portions and various ways But in his son, we see the exact representation of God. Who he really was. 1 Timothy 3.16. Some of you will know and love this scripture. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. We're going to talk about the mystery of godliness a little bit today. But he says, great is the mystery of godliness, but he doesn't leave us in this suspense. Like it's a mystery that we can't understand. Then he just exactly elaborates what that mystery is he says that God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit seen by angels preached among the Gentiles believed on in the world received up into glory who is he talking about here Jesus right so great is the mystery of godliness there's a mystery it doesn't all occur to the natural mind in a flash or an instant but Jesus has revealed him No one has seen him, but Jesus has revealed him. No one has known him, but Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. So in discussing the nature, the true nature of God, we have to compare and explain the old against the greater light and revelation of the new. Because all these scriptures that I've just given you unequivocally make Jesus the standard, the full expression of God never before seen in the world. Would you agree with that? So we don't want to fall into the trap of trying to explain the new against misunderstandings or partial understandings of the old. We want to understand the old in the exact full light and revelation of the new. So when we speak of the wrath of God, we all know that there are scriptures in both Old and New Testaments that speak of God's wrath. So is he a God of wrath or is he a God of love? Let me just put that question out there and see what you, what you all think. If someone came to you who didn't know the Lord and they said, I want to know about your God, which statement would you be more comfortable with? My God is a God of wrath or my God is a God of love. I think I wouldn't convert anybody on this side of the room, only over here. (laughs) Which statement would you be more comfortable with? I think most of us would be more comfortable with the statement, my God is a God of love. But would we deny the wrath of God? We all know all the scriptures and we know in the Old and New Testament that speak explicitly of the wrath of God. And I've already made a little bit of a framework for this and I know I'm going quickly. But let's talk about, what is the wrath of God? So I'm going to give you some options for explaining or interpreting the wrath of God. Number one, the wrath of God refers to personal acts of aggression stemming from the heart of God. That's one option. Because I think that if we look at scriptures that speak of the wrath of God, it's unavoidable that some of these are fairly aggressive displays. Utterly annihilate him. Think of Agag. Hack him in pieces. We get uncomfortable, It's it's so heavy. So one option, the wrath of God represents personal acts of aggression stemming from the heart of an angry God. Option two, well, the wrath of God could, in part, represent more abstract laws and forces in nature that are more tenuously or indirectly tied to God, option two. Option three, that in the Elohim of God, there are angels, not fallen angels, but Glorious angels who are still faithful to God, and they can be ministers of his wrath. Option four, the wrath of God can include rogue nations, people like Nebuchadnezzar. It can even include demons and the devil. It can refer to the actions of demons and devils and not exclusively the personal intervention or expression of God. So which of these four personal acts of aggression, abstract laws of nature, Elohim that includes angels, rogue nations and demons, which of these four or what combination would you be most comfortable with? Have you ever thought of it like that? Have you ever thought that the wrath of God might not be quite so we shouldn't, quite, we shouldn't attribute it as personal acts of aggression from God himself, but it might be more indirect forces that are becoming accomplices to his will with their knowledge or without their knowledge. Has anybody ever thought of it that way? I know some of us have. Can we at least open our minds to think of it that way? The invisible attributes of God have been encoded into the very laws and principles of nature, as well into the armies and hosts of angels who have not fallen but remain faithful to God. These angels are free agents. Hence, once man violates the will of God and the order of the universe, it is not necessary for God to personally intervene in order for justice or compensation to be met. God, we are told in Genesis, rested from his works when the world was yet pristine and perfect. What does this mean, God rested from his works? Does it not say in Psalms 121 or is it 124, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps? So when it says that God created the world and it was Tov Mayod, and then it says that on the sixth day God rested from His works, from all the works which He had done, does that mean that He was so exhausted after so much work that He went and took a nap? He that keepeth Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. What does it mean that He rested? What does that mean? Why, is, why does Moses, why is that told, spoken to us in this formative Genesis passage that God rested from his works. What does that mean? Does it not portray God in the activity that we might see an artist in where the artist is working and he's, he's adjusting this and he's been working on this for six days and he's fixing that shadow over there and he's brightening up that highlight there and he's making sure the anatomy is just right and Oh, let's get that too and standing back and and then at some point the artist knows that it's good. He takes his hands off and he steps back. And he says, "I'm done." Well, now God did that. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he sleeps, it means he takes his hands off. He's it's complete and it means that God acquiesces. He changes his role from one of active intervention in the creation, in the natural world, he takes his hands off and he lets it be. Now, if God had made a painting, that would be one thing because the elements of a painting are one-dimensional and static, right? But those strokes of his brush, they are living creatures. They are dynamic elements in a universe that is always unfolding. One of his strokes was the angels, and another was the creation of man, and another, all the animals. So when God creates this perfect world, he takes his hands off, and he acquiesces to its own self-perpetuation. We know that the world in in its orbit, it's in constant motion, and it has been since the beginning of creation. Does that mean that God is down there spinning the world uh, with with his right arm, keeping it in motion? Huh? Or does it mean that he sets certain things in motion and he upholds all things by the word of his power? He doesn't have to speak it and speak it again. He speaks it and it is done. And then he can take his hands off. When he takes his hands off, it's still a perfect world. But then there's us. We also are not static players in this picture. And what does God do in that third chapter of Genesis? What does he do? He makes man in his own image. And what does he do? When he says, let us make man in our image, what is the next words out of his mouth? Let us give him rule over all the earth, the fish in the sea, birds in the air, the animals on the ground, everything that lives or moves, let us give man rule over all the works of our hands. Doesn't Psalms 8 and 6 say, you have made him a little lower than God and made him ruler over all the works of your hands? Psalms 115 and 16 the heavens, the heavens, these are the, are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the sons of man. So we see God presenting man with a gift. And the gift is rulership of the world. Now what God wanted was for man to maintain a voluntary relationship of trust with Him so that through man, God's love and order would be established in all the world. But he did not make man an automaton. He did not make him a machine part. He made man in his own image. He made him with a free will. He made him with the choice to abuse that rulership which God had given. So we can find scriptures where it says, the earth in all its fullness belong to the Lord. And then we can find scriptures where it says, the heavens, the heavens, these are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. There almost seems to be a contradiction in these two. All of us would say that the earth belongs to God. But we're oftentimes speaking in an immediate sense or an ultimate sense. I've gotten to go to Israel four times in the last three years. And in looking at land over there, We became acutely aware that they have a different arrangement for ownership of land in Israel. Namely, in most cases, in all but a handful of cases, when you buy a piece of property, you take possession, you can build on it, you can call it your own, it's yours. You are given the controlling rights of that property, but... Your ownership expires after 90 years and it reverts back to the the nation of Israel. I think this is so that the wrong people won't get it. Does that make sense? And if they do, it'll eventually revert back to the nation of Israel. Let's imagine some terrorists buy a really nice piece of property. They're bitter against the nation of Israel. They buy this beautiful piece of property and they just make trouble for 90 years. But the Israeli government can keep consoling itself and the rest of the nation saying, look, guys, ultimately it's going to be ours again because they really only have a 90-year lease. Well, in this equation, we are the terrorists. We are the wreckers. (laughs) Mankind was given the controlling rights of the world. In an ultimate sense, God, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And in an ultimate sense, he's going to reign supreme. Zechariah told us that that, in that day, the Lord will reign over all the earth and his name will be the only name, right? But in an immediate sense, he gave man the rights to his world. Think about Romans 8, where he tells us that the creation was subjected to futility in hope. Not willingly. Not willingly. The creation didn't really have a choice in this. But the creation was subjected to futility in hope. God had a hope that one day people would come to realize that the enticement of sin and the temptation of power by brute force was not worth it. And that the only real power worth submitting to was the power of supreme love. And so he took a risk. He subjected the creation to futility in hope. And I ask you, did mankind, has mankind originally disappointed those hopes of God? The first Adam and all his descendants categorically disappointed the hopes of God. Do you remember Genesis 6? It says, God looked upon the earth and he saw that the entire intent of the heart of man was to do evil. And he was sorry that he made man. He repented of his his kindness, of his forbearance, of his trust in us in the immediate But in the ultimate, he saw that there was going to come a man who was heir of the world, like Adam, born of a woman, born under the law. And he was going to make a difference. He was going to do only what he heard the fathers say, nothing of his own initiative. But as he heard, he would speak. Complete obedience. Complete connection. While man has the controlling rights, what do they do with them? Would you say that today, this morning, that man represents the supreme spiritual power over the world? All the kingdoms of the world lie under the control of man. Man is the ruler of the world. The God of this world has blinded the minds. Hmm? Is that the case today? Started out as God's. He gave it to man. Man. Now does man still maintain the ultimate spiritual rule and authority in this world? Who maintains the ultimate rule spiritual, of spiritual authority in this world? Man took the powers entrusted to him which God had intended that he would use in a relationship of voluntary submission with his maker. And man instead comes under subjection to another force altogether, doesn't he? And whomever you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey. So when he takes the bait, when he takes the lie that you shall be as gods, when he adopts that second way of knowing, he had a relationship with God. He walked with God in the cool of the day, but then he's presented with this shortcut to divinity, this analytical knowledge. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. This is going to be enlightenment. This is going to be the tree of knowledge. To be carnally minded is death. In the day you eat of it dying, you will die. It literally says. Amen. Man takes all that power that God had trusted to his hands and he subjects himself to the manipulation, the deception, the tyranny of another power altogether. And this creation that is subjected to futility and hope, we're the futility in that equation. This creation that is subjected to futility and hope, what does this creation start doing? All of creation is groaning and travailing with birth pains until now, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. This wasn't what it was supposed to be suffering under our disobedience. They didn't do anything to deserve it. This accounts for everything. When you see pain and suffering, even in the animal world, it pierces your heart. It hurts you. You say, that shouldn't be. God made everything in this world to live forever. Every bird in the sky, every deer in the field, every tree, every plant, he made it to live forever. But because death entered the world, it is travailing in birth pains. Only through a multiplication of birth is the thread of life barely kept intact. The fall is killing constantly. Rebirth is trying to keep up with death. Travailing, groaning in birth pains until now. Whole species going extinct. And Part of this nature, part of this world that is groaning are the angelic forces. The angels are not like us. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They desire to look into the things that we have. But they're made as the guardians of God's honor. When this world is put under the control of a different king, the angels are immediately protecting the honor of God, aren't they? We're told that the Lord God sent Adam out of the garden. But then, we're, then he explains that a little more clearly. He says he put an angel in the gateway with a flaming sword. So right there in the first image of separation, keeping man's sin back, it's actually an angel, isn't it? Try to imagine how many times in the Bible it speaks of the Lord as Yahweh of hosts. Who are those hosts that we're talking about? Yahweh of hosts? Hmm. It's not the the man who invites you to the dinner. Yahweh of hosts. Some translations will put it Yahweh of heaven's armies. We see that the law even. Angels played a very active role in the giving of the law. This this God who had made himself vulnerable to man. Once man brings sin into the relationship. I Yahweh your God am a jealous God. He's not going to adulterate himself. He's not going to share man in a joint relationship with the devil is he? He is too pure to look upon evil. It's not that God hates us, but Isaiah 59 says, Yahweh's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear you when you pray. So our choices put a barrier between us and God. God's not going to compromise his nature. He's going to bring us back to him, but he has to stay him in order for there to be something for us to get back to someday. I am Yahweh and I change not. So now there's this separation. God is still in the cool of the day. God is still in the garden. But the angel is standing there with a flaming sword, blocking that entrance. These angels who have an internal volition, they're the guardians of God's honor. And so we see that much of the activity that is called God with his people after that, especially those activities of justice and wrath and retribution, it's actually done at the hands of angels. Let's look at this. Stephen, when he's prophesying just before he's stoned, he says, you, he tells the people of Israel, you have received the law as ordained by angels and you did not keep it. We know that God gave the law, didn't he? But it actually came through angels, Stephen tells us. Galatians 3.19, that was Acts 7.53. Galatians 3.19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed, Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. The law was put into effect through angels. So... What made the law effective, let's take that word, effective, was the action of angels. How about this one? Exodus 23, verse 20 through 21, actually 22. Exodus 23, remember this. How about all those times when God, where it says, and God said, utterly kill them, wipe them out, don't leave anybody left. In the conquest of Canaan, you remember all those times that just make you, ooh, what's going on here? Well, look, look at the beginning. When Moses is about to lead the children of Israel into that conquest of Canaan, Exodus 23, verse 20 through 22, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. The angel is going to keep you and the angel is going to bring you into the place. Beware of him. Notice the grammar here in the third person. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him for he will not pardon your transgressions. Angels are sitting in the place as mediators in the old covenant to say no to to the pardoning of sins. They're inflexible. They don't have the heart of God. He will not pardon your sins. For my name is in him. So God deputizes this angel. And he says, I can't have the relationship with all the children of Israel, Moses, that I have even with you. You are able to see my back. You are able to see my glory. But as a whole, there's an angel between me and this unwashed people. And it's a mercy. This angel is going to do the, the, the tough work of discipline. And he's going, to bring, he's going to institute the law. And the law is going to bring them to Christ like a schoolmaster. But I've put my name in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, look how he's speaking interchangeably. Obey his voice and do all that I speak then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So this adversarial role of God in the conquest of Canaan is actually God's deputy, the angel. Now I want to ask you a question. Well, we hold this in our minds, that it's possible that much of what's called God, because his name is in him, we can say that's God. God said this, God said that. Let's ask a question. How many sheriffs are there in McClennan County? That's the county you're in, in case you didn't know. They didn't elect three sheriffs. I don't think, what's his name? I don't think McNamara would get along with two or three or several sheriffs. There's only one in McClennan County. One elected sheriff in his office is posited all the authority to enforce the law, and yet If somebody pulls you over, if the lights go on and you're in the county somewhere and your heart starts going flitter-flutter and you pull over on the shoulder, would it be true to say, I'm being pulled over by the sheriff? And yet that man who comes up to your window, is he actually the elected sheriff? Or is he a deputy of the elected sheriff? But being a deputy, he bears his name, doesn't he? He doesn't come in his own authority. If he knocks on the door, he says, open the door in the name of the law. So he bears the name of the one who has the authority. I don't think Parnell McNamara is out pulling very many people over or slapping those bracelets on very many people. But we all say it, don't we? Um, go, why don't you go ask the sheriff? But we're talking about a deputy, aren't we? So this is a natural worldly example of an an authority figure putting his name or his power, his authority in deputies that do the implementing. The law is instituted at the hands of angels. Be careful to obey all that he says. So is it possible that in the conquest of Canaan, when he says and God said to do this, and God said to do that. Is it possible that we're not really having a one-on-one relationship with the God who is love? But in this realm, in this season, when no man has seen God at any time, the law is being instituted at the hands of angels. What does Moses say in Deuteronomy 33, 2? The Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned on them from Sa'ir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 angels. At his right hand were flashing, at his right hand was flashing lightning for them. So their encounter with God were really through the deputies. Moses had a relationship that the children didn't enjoy, didn't he? With Moses, I speak face to face. David had a relationship that the rest didn't enjoy. Man after God's own heart, Abraham. There were people who had a different level of relationship. But ultimately, it was in Jesus that we saw who God really was. And it wasn't a God of wrath. It was a God of love. It was a God of mercy. So there are many examples in Scripture where it says God did this and God did that. And we can call some of this... Some of this language, some of these verbs have been called Hebraisms because sometimes the translation from Hebrew gives it a very active voice when in fact it can be a fairly passive situation. So there are times where it says God did this and God did that and it gives it a very intervening active voice but it might not be so. Let me give you an example. When it says that Noah sent out the dove, it's the same word, he sent him out of the garden. Does that mean that Noah got that dove, put its wings inside his hand, and sent it out there? Or does it mean he just let it go? Did did Noah put force or energy behind that dove? No, he let it go as some translations will render it, but the actual is he sent it. How about this, where it says the Hebrew midwives, in Exodus one eighteen, it says the, the Hebrew midwives saved the male children or caused the male children to live. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh to kill all the male children and they didn't do it. They decided not to do something but that's spoken of as causing the kids to live or saving the boys. Did this require an active intervening role on their part? Or did it just require them to not do something evil? When God rested There are forces of nature, including angels, including laws of nature. He doesn't have to always play such an active, intervening role. He created this world so we can give him credit for the design that is behind it all, the Bulema of God that is at work in everything, amen? But sometimes it doesn't have to be God personally, actively doing it. He's just letting it happen. He's taking his hands off. In some cases, he's removing his covering. There are places in in the scripture that could almost be very troubling to us because they seem to indicate that there are times when it says that God did something, but then it explains that it was actually angels. Well, that's okay. But it also explains sometimes that it was actually the devil. Let me give you one that will at least make you listen to me. 1 Chronicles 21 and 1. How many of you remember the fact that David did a census of all of Israel and as a result a plague swept through the entire nation? How many of you remember that? Let me ask you before you go find that scripture. Who incited David to number Israel was it God or the devil if you said God you're right and if you said the devil you're right 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel Two Samuel 24 1 this parallel in Samuel now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it meaning the anger of the Lord incited David against them to say, go number Israel. So in one instance, we're told that God's anger incited David to number Israel. And in another instance, we're told that Satan incited David to number Israel. Which was it? Or is it possible that the wrath of God, the anger of God, can even be releasing us to the influence of forces evil, or righteous angels. But it doesn't necessarily indicate the action coming from the heart of the God who is love. How about with Job? It says, in Job it says, all the sons of God came. You can find this in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. All the sons of God came before the Lord and the devil with them. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job to the devil? Everybody remember this? And he says, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil makes an accusation about the character of God and and the lack of trust between God and his people. And the Lord stakes his reputation on Job. He subjects, he doesn't see Job as quite as futile as the rest of us. And he says, have you considered him? There's none like him in all the world. And he gives Satan the allowance. He removes for a purpose the covering. And he gives Satan the allowance to hurt Job. But remember, he says, only do not harm his flesh. Then when the devil comes back in chapter 2, he says, where have you been? He says, well, I've been roaming. And he says, he tells him that he's been with Job. The Lord says to Satan, why did you incite me against Job? Job has just suffered this loss, this hurt. And the Lord says to Satan, why would you incite me against Job? Who actually did it? Who actually did the hurting? So the wrath of God, the anger of God, can really be the devil. Nebuchadnezzar is called my servant. Syria is called my servant. Cyrus is called my war staff. He sent upon them his burning anger, Psalms 78 and 49. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble. And then he clarifies it, comma, a band of destroying angels. But this word sent, we know it was already used for the dove, don't we? It doesn't necessarily mean that God has to play an active, intervening, personal role in all of this stuff. Have you considered my servant Job? There are times when God, the covering is lifted because of our sin. The covering is lifted because of the fall. There's much, the world is obviously exposed to the evil one. So in our flesh we also groan, Paul says. In there and in 2 Corinthians longing to be clothed. We're the ones who brought the world under this exposure to the wrath of the devil. So, the world was given to man. Man subjugates it in turn to the enemy. And now this vicious cycle is in play. Man cannot, does not find in himself the power to resist sin. The power to resist temptation. While we were yet without strength, Paul says... Right when we were yet weak we don't have the power to resist sin and at the same time the devil is holding the just punishment over our heads and the condemnation and we know the punishment comes from God so the devil uses that to make us recoil from God further and further instead of drawing near to God instead of coming back into the garden the wrath the the justice of God God had to create this world as a balance ordered universe. And so the law of compensation inaugurated at the beginning of time. I'm not talking about the law of Moses. The law of compensation inaugurated at the beginning of time is a principle of nature that had to be there. You take that away and the world's going to fall apart. Even Jesus acknowledged it. He said I did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. The law is necessary. But this is also a law from which God rested. Just like he rested from the law of gravity. We like the law of gravity, don't we? It's what keeps your coffee in its cup. It's what keeps us all sitting here smiling. I don't know about the smiling part, but at least sitting here. (laughs) If we didn't have the law of gravity, we'd be a little scary in this room right now, wouldn't it? We'd all be adrift, so to speak. But if I violate this principle of nature, and I go jump off that cliff over there, Because God is responsible for nature and for the law of gravity by implication. If I violate the law of gravity and I jump off the cliff and I am broken and dead at the bottom, somebody could rightly say, well, God's responsible because he made the law of gravity. He could have made a world where when we jump, it's just like pillows. But is it really fair to say God did that to him? That's a judgment of God. Look at it. Every time gravity hurts somebody, is it the judgment of God? Uh, Well, well, sometimes that's how we need to look at the the law of, of, of justice and compensation. It's a necessary element in a world that must be ordered, right? And the Lord warned us. He said, in the day you eat of it dying, you will die. But we didn't take Him seriously, did we? We pulled that that judgment down on ourselves. It's going to come. This judgment, this penalty, the wages of sin is death. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. This principle of sowing and reaping, would you say that in general it's a bad principle in nature? When you plant a watermelon seed and you get a whole bunch of watermelons, do you say, I just hate sowing and reaping? But the the principle of sowing and reaping, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's That's the principle of hell that we're talking about there. That's the principle that brings judgment hurtling toward us. We have sown to the flesh, and we will of the flesh reap corruption. It's good when we plant the watermelon seed. It's bad when we plant sin and we blame God for the sin and we blame ourselves for the watermelon seed but the principle of compensation the principle of sowing and reaping the principle of justice like gravity was a principle put by God in the world and He rested we incurred this judgment we didn't have to sow to the flesh and we didn't have to expect the fearful expectation of judgment but we chose to So, when judgment had already sprouted, when judgment was on its way, when hell had to be paid, then there had to be someone willing to pay it, right? Hell had to be paid. We sowed to the flesh. We had to reap corruption. Picture justice. Let me give another analogy. Picture justice as an arrow poised in a drawn bow. It's there. Don't cross the line. It will end in death, the Lord says. See that arrow? It's to warn you, don't cross the line. It's a necessary element in a world that was still tov me'od. Very good, All right. Hold to the line. And we go over and we release the arrow. And through the ages it's hurtling toward our souls. Somebody has to stand in front of the arrow. The arrow was strung before the world had fallen under the dominion of sin. God the Father did not string the arrow toward us. The arrow was strung when the world was perfect. It was the law of reaping and sowing. It was the law of compensation. And we released the string through our actions and Jesus stood in front of the arrow and received in his body the just penalty of our sins. Was it just for him? No, it was unjust. Amen. In this world where the devil had a stranglehold of condemnation, a dark shroud of gloom and separation from God, At once we couldn't separate ourselves from the temptation of sins and we couldn't avail ourselves of God's grace and spirit because of the condemnation of sin that we attributed to God. We didn't know who you were. Please, sir, forgive us. We didn't know it was you. In this world, God says... Does it say God so hated the world that he bludgeoned his only begotten son instead of us? Is that what it says? God so hated the world, is that what it says? No, it says God so loved the world. God was desperate to save us. God, the God who is spirit. God the Father, the one and only God. He was desperate to save us. And he says, but I gave the rights of the world to man. So, I've got to become a man in order to take the rights back for God. I've got to become like them in every way. I've got to be tempted in like manner, just as they are. So, he came into the world, hid in the weakness he would save, wrapped up in the life of a little babe. And the devil didn't, he wasn't scared, he's a baby. And then he's a man. But then as this man was found without sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, when he lived this life of complete unity with God, the first human being to enjoy a lifetime of reconciliation with God, of oneness with God, of atonement with God, atonement with God then he becomes an existential threat to the devil, doesn't he? And he's bringing this hope and he's bringing this power and he's showing people that God loves them. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The penal substitutionary view of atonement shows us that the father is full of wrath and anger, but we see that that wrath is not the personal actions of an angry God. It's the violation of an order and a nature and an angelic host that is the guardians of his honor. But God so loved the world. It doesn't say God killed Jesus instead of us. It says God, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So in this man born of a woman, born under the law, one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. In His humanity, He is weak like us. He empties Himself of His divinity. He becomes like us in every way. He does not grasp for His rights as God. He defers all of those. He uses His power only for mercy, for love, for miracles of grace. But in, He doesn't call 12 legions for His safety. He empties Himself. He suffers like we suffered. He prays with loud cries and tears to the one who could save his soul from death. And he's heard for his reverent submission. He prays the the humanity of Christ. Travailing to the divinity that indwells. And there is this perfect unity. This perfect reconciliation. He is called Jesus Christ the righteous. In 1 Timothy 3.16 it says that he was justified in the spirit seen by angels, preached among the nations, received up into glory. He was justified. He was one with God. He was right with God. And the devil said, I know every time there's ever been a prophet, every time there's ever been somebody that started to get close to oneness with God, I just kill them. I stone their prophets. I kill those who are sent slain between the temple and the altar. I know death is the answer to everything. But because we... We're slaves through sin to the devil. Whomever you present yourself as slave to obey, you're that one slave whom you obey. Because we were slaves to sin through the devil, slaves of the devil through sin, excuse me. Because of that, this, the devil had a rightful claim on our bodies. We gave it to him, didn't he? Didn't we? And we groan in these bodies, waiting to be clothed with a body that is immortal and eternal from God. But Jesus never sinned. He never gave the devil that rightful claim. So Jesus says, Behold, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no grip on me. He has no hold on me. So Satan had no right to touch him. He, he had a just claim over all the world. But if he touches and takes the life of Jesus in that place, Something unjust takes place, and the canopy of control is torn asunder. Right there, where the blood of Christ is spilt, right there is a place where Satan has no rightful claim. Right there is an elevator shaft, is Jacob's ladder ascending from earth to heaven. That is going to become, upon this rock I'll build my church, that's going to become the body of the corporate Christ. His feet resting on the earth and His head in heaven. And you will see the angels of God ministering to the heirs of salvation, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus submits to the unjust death on the cross. Who killed Jesus? Did the Father kill Jesus? No, sir. If the rulers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known that their power was gonna be broken right there. You see, somebody had to go into the grave. Somebody had to suffer the hell, the, the anguish, the agony that we deserved, but still be without sin and be able to make it out of the grave. So we couldn't make atonement for ourselves. Malachi says, don't bring me your blind lambs. Don't bring me your lame calves. These are unacceptable sacrifices. Our sin made us blemished offerings. We couldn't make an offering for sin. Somebody who was spotless, somebody who was sinless, a billion-dollar sacrifice had to be paid, so pure, so holy, so kind, so merciful that he could satisfy the imbalance of justice which sin had created. He could satisfy it, not for us only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2. He himself is the satisfaction, the propitiation of our sins. And not of ours only, but those of the whole world. Who did he pay that debt to? Who did he pay that ransom to? Did he pay it to the Father? No, the Father was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. Who did he pay it to? Did he pay it to the devil? No, didn't pay it to the devil. Who did He pay it to? He paid it to His own law of justice. He fulfilled the law. He paid it to His own word. He paid it to the necessary balance of righteousness, which this world requires to have any life in it. Righteousness and truth are the foundation of His throne. He paid it to His law of justice. He said, my word wasn't wrong. It was just my children. So we don't see, as even penal substitutionary proponents recognize, we don't see a disagreement in what they call the Godhead. We don't see the father angry and the son saying, kill me, take your wrath out on me instead of those, those children of yours. We don't see that at all. We see the God who is spirit subjecting himself to all of our frailty and, and, and experiencing it through the conduit of Christ's humanity. Fully man, fully God. He bore our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. The Lord God has laid on him the penalty of us all. But in what way did the Lord God lay it on him? One deity speaking to another deity? No. The Lord God laid it on him when Jesus in his humanity prayed To the spirit within and said your will be done. And he became obedient to the form of death. He became obedient unto death. Even death on the cross. What was he obedient to? He was obedient to love. God so loved and love demanded. That we be set free. That he pass into death. Knowing that there was no hold on him. He would pass back out. Doesn't it make you love Jesus? We didn't understand the heart of God. No one had seen him at any time. We didn't understand what he really looked like, what his nature was. But he was the exact representation of his nature. We saw God for the first time. And in seeing God, we realized how much he loved us. How much he cared for us. That he was willing to die for us. Scarcely would a man die for another, but perhaps for a righteous man. But while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having made atonement in his flesh. Amen. God loved us. It wasn't hatred. It wasn't wrath. It was love. It was mercy. It was, it was love. And Jesus said, I've lived my whole life doing nothing but what the Father says. And the spirit that is in me, the spirit that is me, is saying to the humanity, you got to make this sacrifice. No one takes your life from you. You lay it down of your own free will and you'll take it back up again because there's no sin that can keep it in the grave. It'll be an unjust death. So we know he is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but those of the whole world. Does that mean the whole world is saved by the blood of Jesus Does that mean all people are saved? No, the immediate question becomes how do we avail ourselves of that saving sacrifice? We cannot make atonement for ourselves and yet we preach dying daily. Why do we die? Do we die to atone for our sins at Calvary like Christ did? No. He made the only atoning sacrifice. And all the sacrifices we can make They're less than perfect. They're faulty. They're inadequate. But Paul tells us in Romans 6, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Later on he says, as many of us were baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. We were united with him through death. So when he speaks of our death, He says it's our way. It's our pitiful, inadequate sacrifice. But it's our way of being united with our saving sacrifice, which Christ made. So our dying unites us to the sacrifice that saves us. Our denial of self. It's inadequate. It's imperfect. But where the heart is willing, the gift is acceptable. Our sacrifice unites us to the sacrifice that saves us. Tells us that the kindness of God brings us to repentance. We didn't know. We didn't know that we could approach the throne of grace. We didn't know that we could find great boldness to come before him and make our petitions. We didn't know we could get the power of the Spirit. But Jesus showed us who God really was. And in his kindness, he opened for us a new and living way. He gave us confidence to approach the Holy Spirit, the Father, who is the Holy Spirit. We don't subscribe to a social trinity, as you already know. He gave us that assurance. We can draw near to God. Through faith, having our hearts are sprinkled clean from an unclean conscience, sprinkled with blood, the blood of Christ, our consciences were dark. We didn't trust God. Even our conscience, even our will, we were scared. But His blood washed away all that fear, washed away all that that accusation against God. And we said, "Oh, we see a new and living way. We realize He loves us." So He disarmed Satan in Satan's abuse of justice, didn't He? He nailed the law with all of its ordinance and code against us. He nailed it to the cross. He satisfied it and nailed it to the cross. He made us know that we could trust God. He made us know that we could draw near to God. Many people talk about being freed. Many people talk about being ransomed. And it's all true. But I want to ask you, you know, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. Picture him as the prosecuting attorney. Jesus is called the paraclete. Also the Holy Spirit, called the paraclete, which in Greece was a defense attorney, an advocate with the Father. The word is paraclete, right? So justice as the the word and the law of God is demanding that we should die. The devil, we know, was abusing that law of justice to hold us in bondage all our lifetime, right? And Jesus, as the paraclete, is wanting to get us off the demands of justice. And in doing so, he says, I'll pay whatever they owe, right, to justice. Sometimes it just gets you. It just hits you. I'll pay whatever they owe to justice. But when we are released, are we released and freed into the world without an obligation? Or are we transferred from the jurisdiction of death and justice and placed under the jurisdiction of Christ? Many Christians talk about being freed, but you're not freed unless you're also enslaved. You're freed from the law of death and sin if you've become a bondslave of Christ. So he says, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts unto men. It doesn't say he clipped all their chains. He says he's, it says that he took captive the captives. He said, you've been a captive to death. Why don't you come into me and become mine? Hmm? How about this one? Two Corinthians 2:14. 2, "But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. We are captives in tr- being led in triumphal procession through Christ and spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Two Corinthians 6:19, "You are not your own. You have been purchased with a price. You're a slave. You're a bond slave. Paul writes in Romans 1, Paul, I, Paul, a bond slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. We are bond slaves. Somebody paid our bond? That means we're a bond slave. And if we, don't, if we, if we give up that captivity to Christ, I put in quotes, then our bond is still owed. How about this one? Thinking that obedience is tied to redemption. John 15 Everybody knows this. Think about this scripture. God's uh, um, greater love has no man than this, then he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He doesn't say that he laid down his life for anybody that wants to claim his sacrifice without merit. He says, I lay down my life for my friends and you're my friends if you do what I command you. That's part of the scripture that they never quote, you know? If you do what I command you, however imperfectly, you must do what I command you. Jesus is the only one justified before God. He is the only one righteous. John calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only one who never sinned. He's the only one where flesh and divinity we're made completely one in perfect reconciliation. So then it becomes incumbent upon us to get inside that Jesus. And salvation is spoken of in spatial terms. Not in creedal or formulaic terms. Salvation is not, it does not say, There is therefore now no condemnation to whoever says the sinner's prayer. It says there is that now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is a place that we've got to get into because He's the only man who's fully justified before God. He's the only fully justified before God. We've got to get inside of Him. So it says, if you if you were a criminal, and there were posters at the post office with your name and with your face in black and white, what would you do to escape? That justice. If somebody saw, if your poster was all over McLennan County, what would you do to avoid getting caught? Go to another place. You would change your look. You would change your name. You'd change the color of eyes, your eyes, if you could. You would change your circle of relationships. You would change everything about you. Now, that would be a lie. But Jesus comes to all of us who are the most wanted and he says, I'll give you a new name. I'll give you a new circle of relationships. I'll give you a new place. I'll put my very spirit inside of you. And when he does that, he does not make improved sinners. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. It's not... Me in uh, 2.0. Do you understand? For me to live is not me improved. For me to live is Christ. Paul says my life is hidden with Christ and God. So when salvation is complete, you can't find that isolated individual in his autonomy. Justice can't find him either. Satan can't find him either. Where's that man who, who owed hell, who had hell to pay? Where did he go? Is he? We can't find him because his life is hid with Christ and God. He's not his own. He doesn't have his name. He doesn't have his old identity. He doesn't even have the same spirit that he was born with. He's been born to a living hope. Think of yourself as on the blacklist, a no-fly list. You can't escape the control of this world. You can't escape the judgment of this world. And if you go and show your passport, the gates of will prevail against you at the portals of eternity but if there if you are in him there's no condemnation for those who are in him Who forfeited all their rights let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus who forfeited all his rights so when you when you get to the to the portals of eternity you're not going to hold up your passport with a little parenthetical that says christian you're going to hold up identity of jesus you're going to say i'm not my own And you're going to have his name written on your forehead, Jesus Christ. And they shall fall down before him just like they did when they came to arrest him in the garden because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So salvation becomes inextricably tied to identity. Christians who want to have an identity in the world, they have divorced themselves from their salvation in Christ because it is not just salvation by Christ, it is salvation in him. In, 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 in him. Salvation is a place. It is a place where you are lost, where you are hidden, where you become invisible. And he is all in all. For by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. You are in Christ Jesus. But if, while seeking the justification in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, Galatians 2.17, is Christ a minister of sin? May it never be. But the salvation is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might live for the devil? No, so that we might become, it's a process, the righteousness of God in Him, in Him.